0: Hebrews chapter 10, beginning now at verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away Your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will not will come and will not tarry now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Father, may it be so among us here this morning that we would be of those who believe to the saving of the soul, that we would be those, Lord, who do not draw back. And we know that part of that work happens as you speak to us and as you work in us by your word through your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated the writer to the Hebrews has encouraged and has spoken somewhat like a coach to his readers all throughout the book, trying to persuade them to the best of his ability to keep on with Jesus Christ, to not give up, but to stay strong in their faith in Christ. Now, most of it has been very persuasive explanations, logical arguments, trying to point out how Jesus is better and Jesus is superior to the, any of the things related to the old covenant and why we should pursue him with all of our heart and with all of our life. But occasionally, occasionally, the writer to the Hebrews uses very strong and solemn warnings. He speaks to us sort of looking at us straight in the eyes, warning us of the consequences of departing from a faith in Jesus Christ. This is just one of those passages. And I want you to kind of put it in this context. Let's pretend that you're speaking personally with someone who has a problem with addictions in their life. It really doesn't matter what the addiction is. It could be to some substance. It could be to some habit, whatever it is. But someone who is bound by addictions and you're trying to encourage them to make that life changing decision to put it in the past, to put their faith in Jesus Christ and to find freedom from their addictions. Now, how would you do that? How would you go about it? Well, you would probably adopt a positive approach. You'd say, hey, look at all the things you'll gain When you leave your addiction behind, look at how your family will be healed. Look at how you won't be poor anymore. Look at how this good thing and that good thing. And you would adopt a very encouraging, positive approach. But, but. Probably sometime or another, you'd probably look at that person square in the eye and you'd warn them, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you tell them soberly, looking at them with all the love in your heart, but saying it strongly, friend. You continue this way and you will die. You can't go on like this. This is a dead end road that you're on. Now, I wouldn't think you'd be cruel for doing that. I I think you'd be loving towards your friend. Because where a warning is appropriate, it's a loving thing to do it. And just right here in this text, the writer of the Hebrews gives a very strong warning. Let me read it to you again, starting at verse 26. I'll read through verse 31. He says this. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My friends, you got to admit that's a pretty strong warning, don't you think? Let's take it apart piece by piece. First, look at those words in verse 26, where he begins with this for if we sin willfully. I think it's very important for us to understand what he means by a willful sin. Don't you believe that in a sense, every sin is a willful sin? If it's not willful, it's not a sin. So there's a sense in which every sin is a willful sin, but he doesn't mean just any kind of sin. He means a particular kind of willful sin. And a matter of fact, we're very grateful for the right of the Hebrews because he defines for us the kind of willful sin that he's speaking about. He defines it in verse twenty nine. So look with me at the characteristics of this willful sin that he speaks about. The characteristics are mentioned in verse twenty nine. First of all, he says this. They have trampled the son of God underfoot. And ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus is disgraced, as his greatest work is rejected and his greatest accomplishment is treated with contempt, then Jesus Christ is being devalued. He's being devalued in who he is and what he is. It's like trampling the Son of God underfoot. That's one part of the willful sin he speaks about. Verse 29 defines another part of it. Look at it there where he says it's as if they counted the blood of the covenant, a common thing. In other words, they perceive Jesus dying on the cross. They perceive his blood being shed, but they look at it and say, you know what? That blood that Jesus shed on the cross, it's a common thing. There's nothing special about it. It's just like the blood of a bull or a goat. It's just as the blood of one of the two thieves on either side of him. Nothing special about the blood of Jesus. That's another aspect of this willful sin. And then in verse 29 also, he gives a third aspect of this willful sin. It says, They have insulted the Spirit of grace. Do you know what the work of the Holy Spirit is primarily? Now, the Holy Spirit has a multifaceted work to do in us and among us. But his primary work is to draw attention to Jesus and to give glory to him. And when somebody rejects Jesus, when they reject who he is and what he has done, they insult the Holy Spirit by rejecting the Spirit's testimony about who he is and what he has done. So when taken together, these statements show just how serious it is to reject Jesus and his work. When you reject Jesus and his work, it's not a polite thing. It's not a moderate thing. I would call it this. I would call it anti-Jesus extremism. Because it is a very extreme rejection of what the Bible says. Look, the Bible says that Jesus is God. If you reject it, I regard you as an anti-Jesus extremist. The Bible says that the work of Jesus on the cross paid for the sins of humanity. And for all those who trust in it, they can find freedom from sin, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, and one day even freedom from the presence of sin. To reject that, I think, makes you an anti-Jesus extremist. There's nothing moderate about it. And this is what our world wants today. So much in the culture around us today, what they want is they want a very dignified, moderate rejection of Jesus. Do you realize how magnetic Jesus is as a person? Just read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read about Jesus and tell me if you can't help falling in love with Jesus. There's something so wonderful, so amazing about him. Yet people find it difficult to say, well, I, I, he's a wonderful man, but he's not God. Well, well, well he did many noble things, but, but his death on the cross means nothing. You're not allowed that option. You've got to take the whole package about Jesus. And if you don't take the whole package, again, you're rejecting Jesus. You are, as he says before, You're trampling the son of God underfoot. You're counting the blood of the covenant, a common thing. And you are insulting the spirit of grace. That is the willful sin that the writer of the Hebrews refers to. And what is it of those people who commit such willful sin like that? Look at it there in verse 26. He says this, it's powerful. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For those who reject Jesus and his work for us, There is no other sacrifice that remains. It's not like you can say this. Well, I'll reject Jesus, but I'll make it through my own good efforts. My church attendance, my religious observance, my rituals. I'll reject Jesus, but I'll make it through some other great religious leader. I'll reject Jesus, but I'll, how about this? I'll follow my heart. Good luck with that. Because I'll tell you what the Bible says. It says it very plainly. I'll just read it again there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If Jesus's sacrifice is rejected, there remains no other sacrifice that can cleanse you from your sins. Now, look, I'm the first one to admit that in the perception of our culture, this seems to be very narrow minded. Now, come now. Is there really only one way to get my debt of sin satisfied before God? Is there really just this one singular way? That seems awfully narrow-minded. It seems awfully, you know, single in its focus. Why can't there be many ways? I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I have an answer to that question. Why can't there be many ways? I'll just tell you that that's what God says. And I want you to realize how serious it is to demand of God that He provide other ways. In your mind's eye, would you look with me right now to the cross? Would you see Jesus there nailed to the cross? There's iron spikes that go through His wrists and His feet. There's a crown of thorns upon His head, and above it, there's a title written, nailed to the top of the cross, that says, Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews. And it says it in Aramaic, it says it in Greek, and it says it in Latin. And there, as Jesus dies on the cross, you and I, we go and we take a look at the cross and we see Jesus dying. And right at that moment, when he cries out before God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that holy moment when Jesus bears the sins of the world, we look at Jesus on the cross and this is what we say. Well, God, that's pretty good. But can you do something else as well? Doesn't that sound so horrible to say? As if God didn't do enough at the cross. Oh, that's a great plan B or plan A. Could you give us plan B and C and D? Do you not see what God shouts to humanity through the cross? This is the ultimate. It is impossible for me to do more. So here it is, humanity. Accept it or reject it, but here it is. And for those who reject it, The news is heavy. Look at verse 27. What does it say? It says, if you reject the work of Jesus and his work on the cross, then what remains for you is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. This is what you get when you reject Jesus and his sacrifice for you. You aren't rescued from your sin and your guilt. You're condemned in them. And what will people say on that day? What will the mockers say when they stand before Jesus? When they're judged by the one who opened up his veins to bleed for the payment of their sins, but they rejected it and wanted to go their own way. They'll have nothing to say. Every tongue will be stopped. Every lip will be shut. Now, verse 29, he points out, How much worse punishment. In other words, if it was a heavy thing to reject what God provided through the old covenant. How much more heavy is it when we reject what God provides through a better covenant, the new covenant. And it is so heavy. It is so significant that he uses this phrase. You saw it there in verse 31. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing indeed to one day face the God you've rejected, that you've offended so greatly. If you want to trample the Son of God underfoot, you're going to face Him someday. If you want to count the blood of His covenant a common thing, you're going to face Him who opened up His veins for you. Now The thing is is that God loves you enough And I don't know if this is exactly the right word, but I'll say it. God respects you enough to give you that choice. He will not force you to believe and to accept him. But he offers it out before you. But do you see how loving he is to warn you of the consequences and to say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Friends, how much better is it to fall into the arms of a loving Savior. Wouldn't you rather do that? I don't want to take a vote of hands today, but I think we can pretty much say it is much better to fall into the arms of a loving Savior than it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, no, no. Here we receive this warning. We take it to heart. We take it to heart for ourselves and it makes our heart break for a world that's perishing around us. But this is what I want you to know. It's not all warning, the passage we read. No, when we get into verse 32, now he starts to transition into some encouragement. So are you ready for some encouragement after the warning? Here we go. Verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by the reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Now, after the strong warning, he's bringing another encouragement to them and he's encouraging them along these lines. He says, look, Take heart and remember how you stood for God in tough times before. Think about it in the past. I mean, that's how he opens our verse 32. But recall the former days. Friends, you've already suffered some for Jesus. You've already been the brunt of jokes and you've been mocked and you've been reproached. And some of you have gone through great trials and people in other parts of the world. They have been persecuted with great pain and suffering. Remember all that you've already sacrificed for Jesus. Why would you give up on that now? Why? You've already, so to speak, you got some skin in the game. You've made an investment in it. Why give up on it now? You have, as verse 32 says, you've had a great struggle with sufferings. Now, look at how he explains his sufferings here, starting at verse 33. He says, you've been made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. Do you know what reproaches are? It's when people talk critically and negatively about you. Now, isn't this the main way that we are persecuted or have to suffer for Jesus Christ in our culture? Uh, Look, let's face it. There are many people in the world that they think I'm an idiot for being a Christian. They think I'm an idiot for believing the Bible. I thank the Lord that for the most part in the Western world, we don't have to suffer the way they do in other countries. We don't have to suffer and face martyrdom and face prison And face persecution the way they do in other countries. No, mainly for us, it's bearing reproach. It's people think we're morons. We think think, they think that we're idiots. Oh, you're so dumb for being a follower of Jesus. And sometimes that is a grave sacrifice to bear up under that, isn't it? It's not easy to live under that kind of pressure. Well, Paul says, listen, excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews says, remember, you've suffered along these lines before why would you give up on it now? But it's not only that. Verse 33 says you were companions of those who were so treated. In other words, you willingly aligned yourself with those who were being reproached, with those who were being persecuted. Now, look, this is one of the great challenges for us. I would say it's a challenge for us in 2014. Look, I'm no prophet. I can't predict things about the coming year, but I will say this. It's entirely reasonable to assume that Christians are going to be more mocked, more reviled, more rejected by the culture at large in this coming year than in the previous year. And I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know where, but there's going to be people either you hear about or you know about or maybe you know personally, and they are going to be mocked and reviled and reproached for being a Christian. Will you stand beside him and say, well, you know what? If you're mocking believers, mock me right along with them. Because some things that this other person do, they may embarrass me. You know, I may not like how they dress or some of the things they say. But the bottom line, they're a believer and they're being mocked for being a believer. Mock me too. That's what he's saying. And this is what we have to look forward to as our culture gets more and more distant from a past, more rooted in a Christian um, morality and mentality. But they also face, look at verse 34, economic persecution. It speaks of the plundering of your goods. Did you know that throughout church history, this has been one of the primary and first ways that Christians have been persecuted? They've been persecuted economically. They don't get that job. They don't get that raise. They don't get that education. They don't get that. For example, in the old communist world, if you were an outspoken Christian, you couldn't get into the universities and therefore you couldn't get a good job. This is just how it was on and on and on. Or they'll have special taxes or they'll have their things robbed on and on. Economic persecution is something that has been common and is common in different parts of the world today. But the point is this. They had faced many things and they had endured them and they could take a look at their past endurance and be encouraged enough to keep strong standing in the future. And I'll say this as well. When the early church endured in the face of persecution, they did it, please listen, they did it without hating their persecutors. This is the great challenge for us as we continue on in the Western world. Because you and I, when we're reproached, when we're mocked, when we're made fun of, when people lie about us and accuse us of things that aren't true about us, on and on, when we get all that, I don't know about you, but me? I'm tempted to hate those people in return. But I realize that as a follower of Jesus Christ... That avenue is not open for me. God tells me to love my enemies, to pray for my persecutors. And not only do I want to return to them good when they give to me evil, just as Jesus did, but I want to pray for them and see that God would do a great work among them. This is our great challenge. But following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and God helping us, we can do exactly that. Why can we do it? Look at the end of this particular section, verse 34 knowing that we have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. They made it through these times of persecution because they kept a heavenly perspective. And so must we. Now, I'm not saying that we abandon this world. No, not by any means. God calls us to be like salt and light in the world, a preservative, an illumination in this world. We're to seek to advance the kingdom of God in whatever sphere he gives us and whatever calling he puts in our way. Yes, we don't give up on what God wants to do in this earth. But but our heart is really set on heaven, isn't it? And when we have that heavenly hope, we realize here's the great thing we realize. That this world is the worst it's ever going to be. Isn't that a good thing for you to remember? It's the worst it's ever going to be. It's all up in the world to come. Now, unfortunately, for those who reject Jesus, it gets turned around, doesn't it? This world is the best it's ever going to be. No, it's far better to be on the right side of that particular equation. Now, starting at verse 35 and to the end of the chapter, he gives another line of encouragement. Now he's going to tell them to draw on their past experience to gain strength for the future. Look at how he says it. He says this, starting out verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Well, we need it, don't we? Don't we need this endurance? And so what? We don't cast away our confidence. Confidence and endurance go together. And I know the world screams at you and says, oh, you're dumb for following Jesus. Oh, you're a moron for following the Bible. You know what? Don't let that cast away your confidence. You hold on to it. Hold on to this and remember what the Bible says. Let God be true and every man a liar. We hold on to the confidence. We don't throw it away. Some people say that the image here is almost like of a soldier throwing away his shield. We're not going to do that. We need the shield. We're going to hold on to that shield. and We're going to dig in our feet for the battle and not cast away our confidence. Because as verse 36 says, we have need of endurance. We need to hang in there. Now look at verse 37, where in verse 37 he's going to quote an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage is simply this. It is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Check this out. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says this. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So here... He quotes Habakkuk chapter two, verses three and four, with the emphasis on the phrase, the just shall live by faith. Now you know what? I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. It's from the prophet Habakkuk chapter two, verses three and four. But what you may not realize or or have understood until just right now, that particular line from Habakkuk chapter two is quoted three times in the New Testament. To me, that makes it pretty important, don't you think? God gave it to us in triplicate, not only the uh, the 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 quotation originally in Habakkuk. But what I find interesting about this is the three times it's quoted in the New Testament. The context gives it a little bit different emphasis. Let me show you what I mean. In Romans chapter one, verse 17, Paul quotes this passage from Habakkuk with the emphasis on faith. He says this, the just shall live by faith. And he's emphasizing the faith that the just person lives by. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he also quotes the passage again, but this time the emphasis is on just. In other words, the righteous person, the person who's been rescued by God, the just shall live by faith. That's the idea, is that one who has had their life changed by Jesus. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, here the verse is quoted with the emphasis on live. The just shall live by faith. And he's telling us to go on forward with this life of faith that God gives us, never pulling back, never retreating, but rather saying, no, if the just shall live by faith, then Lord, make me one of those who live by faith and go on forward and have that ongoing life. This is what God has for you. I think it's a beautiful, appropriate message at the beginning of the year. But don't you agree it applies every day of the year? every year of your life. God has a life for you to live and he wants you to live it by faith in the Son of God. Never retreating, never letting go, but always having your eyes forward. Now, he's warned us about the consequences of turning our back on Jesus, correct? That was in the first part. But now, now we remember the heavenly hope in front of us and the fact that the just shall live by faith. That's why he concludes conclude so confidently in verse 39. Look with me at verse 39 and look at this beautiful, confident conclusion. He says this, but we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Man, I would love that written over the life of every single person in this room that you could say, yes, that's me. I am not of those who draw back to perdition. Perdition is just sort of a fancy word for destruction. I'm not one of those who draws back to destruction. No, no. The safety, the security, the blessing of my Christian life is found in a forward life, in a forward walk with God. Those who believe to the saving of the soul. There's something about this that I want you to notice in verse 39 when he said those who believe. Do you notice the verb tense there? The verb tense is in the present tense. It's not in the past. He says to say, those who have believed to the saving of the soul, nor is it in the future tense, those who will believe to the saving of the soul. No, it's right now in the present tense. And I guess that's a great place for us to conclude and sort of wrap this up. Do you have a faith that is in the present tense? Hey, you know, a lot of you have a faith that believed at one time. Good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. But you know, that past tense faith, that's not going to cut it. What you need now is a present tense faith. So, yeah, I'm not so interested if you have believed in the past. I'm even less interested. You say, no, I will believe in the future. What I want to know right now is you say, no, I believe to the saving of the soul. Now, God loves you so much that he gives to you something tangible, something material to help you believe right now in the present moment. You know what that is? It's communion. The bread and the cup that we take together. In just a few moments, our, our high school leader, Daniel, is going to come on out and lead us in communion. But I want you to think about how God uses the bread and the cup to bring us to the present moment. Because in our minds... The death of Jesus happened a long time ago, didn't it? Some 2,000 years ago, a long way from here. But God wants it to be for you right now, immediate, that you believe in the present tense. You do that, then you will be well instructed by the warnings we just heard and press on to a real and living faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the strength of these warnings from your word. We understand, Lord, that not every passage of your word is full of comfort and sentiment like uh, Psalm 23. But no, Lord, sometimes we need to hear the tough truth. We thank you that you love us enough to speak it to us and to give us encouragement along the way. Now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I pray that you would stir everybody in this room up to have a present Hence faith. Do that among us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.